Hi, I'm Casey Hobbs. And I'm Shane Mason. And we're the hosts of Nurse Talk Radio. Please join us for this special edition podcast. So coming up next, a remarkable woman shares her journey. RN, author, humorist, and oral cancer survivor, Terry Tate, will talk about her new book, A Crooked Smile. How do you keep going when the doctor gives you a 2% chance of survival? For Terry Tate, it was a blend of faith, perseverance, prescription strength humor, and most of all, a heart that never quit. I had to stop reproaching myself for not being able to adhere to any one system of treatment, writes Terry. I needed to create my own recipe for healing. A Crooked Smile, a memoir, which is on sale November in 2016, is Terry's irresistible story of her journey through diagnosis, surgeries, the labyrinth of modern healthcare, and into surprising new adventures in self-discovery. With her wry ability to illuminate the profound and the absurd, she invites us to experience her ride on the emotional roller coaster of fear and hope, devised long bargaining and bitching sessions with a very stubborn God, and how the truly meaningful and joyous gifts of life always revealed themselves at the most unexpected times. Here with us in the studio is Terry Tate. Terry, so nice to have you with us again, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here, and this is really a dream come true. Every time I was on the show before, I imagined being here with a real book in my hands, and here I am after only 24 years of working on it. That's great. So, Terry, let's start with the the diagnosis of oral cancer in 1991. The doctors gave you a 2% chance of survival. So what was life like before the diagnosis and then suddenly after? Well, I've said that that my life was just starting to look pretty good. Um, I had grown up in a sort of hoity-toity suburb where looking good was all that mattered. And I rebelled against that and, you know, didn't care what I looked like and was sort of a a goody-two-shoes but wild and crazy at the same time. Mm -hmm. But right before the diagnosis, I had just met um, yet another would-be husband. And uh, my younger son had just gone off to college. We'd gotten a, a new house in the country that was so beautiful that we kept waiting for the real owners to show mm-hmm. up. And life was looking pretty good. And then with a little spot underneath my tongue, the whole thing started to unravel. So how many surgeries did you end up having and how long did it take you to finally engage in life again? Well, I had one surgery for the first bout, and they debated doing radiation but decided against it. A year and a half later, I started having symptoms again, and it took them again a few months to diagnose, such that by the time I got the surgery, I had a a tumor the size of a golf ball where my part of my tongue had been. And that surgery was 24 hours long. Wow. Where they seven times attempted to replace the jaw they had removed with my iliac crest and failed seven times. And what was it that took them so long? So, you know, you knew that it was back. You had a real sense that it was back. Well, I think that this surgeon 
who I had seen every month since the first surgery for checkups. And as soon as he would give me the all clear, we chatted mm-hmm. about medicine and marriage and all manner of things. And I feel like he didn't want to believe it was cancer any more than I did. And so he was like, well, let's test for lichen planus. Well, maybe it's thrush. Well, maybe it's the antibiotics. Well, maybe it's the infection. I see. But this was a really sweet, sensitive guy who was doing his best, and he really didn't want to believe it. So that's my theory. That makes it complicated. Yes, it does. So, you know, I was mad, but I also got what he was, you know. Where he was with that. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned at some point after the surgery, you you began to ask, why did this happen to me? And not in a self-pity way, but with some curiosity. So can you talk about, you said there's a soft voice in your head that you felt like was kind of guiding you towards that answer. Well, prior to the cancer, the only voice in my head was the one that I have since named the vile bitch upstairs. (laughs) And her not enough message was so ubiquitous that I really thought that she was all there was to me until the cancer slowed me down and shut me up because it was oral cancer long enough to really begin to listen to other voices. And I discovered in a fairly dramatic way that I write about in the book, abandoned sort of, I hate to say inner child, it sounds too California, but essentially it was a part of myself that I had neglected. The part that I shut away when I got it as a kid that my needs weren't going to be met, so better not to have them. And this voice basically said, I had to almost kill you to get your attention. And so part of the healing for me was connecting with this piece of myself, realizing that we had a lot in common, that we both liked feather boas and Hirschman music and walking by the water, and that we weren't all that different after all. And then she led me to that voice that I refer to as my guides, because I live in California, so I can. Right. But um, I believe we all have that connection to divine wisdom and that there's so much clutter in our lives that we don't hear it. So how long was it between the second surgery and your realization that there was more to you than just the dark voice? A long time. Years Uh, and years. Well, truthfully, the second surgery, they um, ended up, when the hip didn't work, they ended up putting a bar in to replace the part of my jaw that they'd taken. During radiation, that bar came loose and had to be removed in yet another surgery. And then the doctors all wanted to replace that bar. One wanted to use my other hip. One wanted to use another metal bar. Somebody else wanted to use a cadaver jaw. And somebody else was going to use one of my leg bones. And, you know, it was... And this was the first time in the saga that the experts disagreed. And so it was up to me to decide whether or not to have any of those surgeries. And that was actually when I got in touch with that inner knowing. Mm -hmm. And I woke up one morning having asked the night before, the night before I went out on the deck and 
held up my arms and said, please, God, tell me what to do. And, you know, I was hoping that it would be like the big right. voice. The big voice would come out yeah, of the, the sky, light, the, the clouds would part. Right, yes. the blue light special, right. Hollywood Kmart movie. Right. voice. Would, right. That didn't happen. And so I went to bed a little disappointed. But the next morning I woke up knowing that I should not have that surgery. And they told me that if I didn't, that what little is left of my lower jaw would gravitate over time, and I would be more disfigured than I already was, less able to eat and less able to talk. But I knew in my heart that if I got into another patient gown at that point, I was never getting out of one. And so between that realization and then hearing your true inner voice— it still was a period of time. Well, no, I, I'd say that that was my true inner That was voice. the beginning, right. Yeah, and that was, and I'd heard little inklings of it before mm-hmm. um, when I was asking for guidance about which of the plethora of healing modalities to pursue, um, but it took a long time to trust it. Mm-hmm. But I did not have the surgery, so I trusted it enough. Terry, in 1994, you took a writing class with famed author Anne Lamott and also wrote a wonderful foreword for the book A Crooked Smile, which you say took over a decade to write. Can you say a little more about that that foreword and your experience with her in that relationship? Absolutely. Uh, I actually, I um, read in her book, I mean, it's a longer story, which I will be telling at Book Passage on November 1st, where okay. Annie will introduce me Excellent. at the very first launch of A Crooked Smile. Um, but through a miraculous series of events, I uh, discovered her and read in her book on writing, Bird by Bird, that one of the downsides of writing is that sometimes you see that spot in your mouth when you look in the mirror and you're sure that it's oral cancer and the doctor will have to cut out your tongue and no one will ever want to kiss you again as if they ever did. And I tracked her down and sent her a letter and said, by the way, sometimes that really is oral cancer. And, um, and uh, they really do cut out half your tongue. And I think you're the funniest person alive. I'll do anything to be in your presence. And I had a friend hand deliver it to a class. I wanted to take the class. And, they, and I said, Oh, I, I called Book Passage and said, I'd like to be in Anne Lamott's class, and they laughed. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, well, you're number 230 on the right. waiting list, so right. hope you live long enough. But the day after she got the letter, she called me and nice. said, come and sit in the back of the room anytime you want to. Nice. I think she's a prophet and, um, <laughs> and my favorite writer and maybe the funniest person alive. And she encouraged me throughout that time and, you know, said, I hope you finish that book because I want to write something for it. So that segues nicely into the next question. How important is humor through this whole journey? It is hugely important. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say that as, you know, I mean, my family certainly is up there on the dysfunctional scale, as most families are. But everybody in my family has a sense of humor. And uh, as dark as things got throughout this whole process, we were able to laugh. Which is great. And that was, you know, I mean, there were lots of times when I couldn't talk. 
And I must say that really repartee suffers when you're writing on an Etch-a-Sketch. Yeah, about but, so uh, true. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have this really clever line in yeah. my head, and this conversation was way on down the road before it happened. But um, but there were little moments of humor and moments of grace. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, that I really think that moments of grace is what life is all about. It's not going to be all grace and greatness, but if you can be alive in those moments, it makes the other stuff uh, tolerable. What would you say to anyone listening that might be faced with a frightening diagnosis or really any any barrier or obstacle right now? Uh, what I would say, for me, the biggest lesson of all this is learning to like myself better. And although I look back at pictures of myself now and see that I was really quite beautiful before the cancer, I like myself better even though the outer covering is disfigured. And for me, the hardest part, other than the fear of dying and leaving my kids, uh, was the fear of being on my deathbed and having the vile bitch show up and yeah. say, if only you'd done that, that macrobiotic diet, you wouldn't be in this mess. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I would say to anybody in any hard situation, which is pretty much life these days, um, is to be kinder to yourself. And I believe that that really my message is about accepting yourself and your life as is. I really feel that it's only with acceptance of things as they are that we get out of God, spirit, whatever's way well enough that things can change. So very true. So you said in the closing of your book, I would like to be as beautiful as I now see I was before cancer, especially on eHarmony. You bet I would, but wouldn't trade the benefits of loving myself from the inside out. And so it took this journey, it took the cancer for you to be able to start that journey and now work and now live from the inside out. That's right. And I feel like, um, I really do feel like it was almost dying. Yes. I mean, I'm a nurse. Yeah. I, you know, I was codependent in utero. Mm -hmm. It took a big wake up call for me to see that I needed to take care of myself and stop trying to fix other people. And the irony is that my nursing career was going around the country and talking to nurses about taking care of themselves and each other. Interesting. Because I believe in my heart of hearts, and I believed it even before the cancer, but now having spent more time in the patient role than I ever wanted to, I really believe that we are no better to our patients than we are to ourselves and to each other. That's fantastic. Anything else you'd like to share? I'm just really grateful to be here, and I really, really do want to just remember uh, that not to wait for a dramatic wake-up like mine and to really be kind to yourself so that you don't have to go through this. I would agree wholeheartedly. The more you love yourself, the more love you have to give. And I can't say enough that what Terry says is absolutely true. 
especially for the nurses out there. Do not wait for a wake-up call. Your ability to care for people is directly connected for your ability to care for yourself and to truly love yourself. There isn't a greater gift on the planet than that, for sure. Thank you so much for your time as a nurse, Terry, but also for your time as an activist and for writing this book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking with RN author and humorist Terry Tate about her new memoir, A Crooked Smile. Terry's book's available in major bookstores and on Amazon.com. For more information about this topic, visit nursetalksite.com. Mm-hmm.